Take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 19, second book of the Bible. To this point, we have seen in our study that God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. He has taken them, beginning them on their journey. He has provided them with water. He's provided them with food. He parted the Red Sea to begin with. Now in Exodus chapter 19, God is going to provide His people with instruction on how to live. And we're going to see that summarized in the Ten Commandments that we'll go through. But as you read the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you see those laws kind of unpacked along the way. The Ten Commandments are kind of the summary of that. In Greek, they're called the Decalogue, ten words, the ten words of God. And these commandments become the the basis of our spiritual life, the basis of how we follow God. By the way, spiritually, that happens for us. And when you think about Western civilization, the Ten Commandments, again, the summary of the law, are really the, the basis of the laws of civilized communities. God had taken uh, the nation of Israel. Remember, they were up here in a land called Goshen, and God delivered them, took them across the Red Sea. They're going to eventually get to the promised land up in Canaan, but God has a, 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 an interesting route that He takes us on sometime, doesn't He? And He takes them south first. They go down to the desert of Sin. They come right into this area, the desert of Sinai, and God brings them right before Mount Sinai. That's where they are in Exodus chapter 19. They've been traveling for three months at this time. They're camped in front of Mount Sinai. Look at chapter 19, verses uh, 3 through 6. Just imagine this going on. God uh, went up, uh, Moses went up on the mountain, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. He said, this is what you're to say to the house of Jacob, what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. You were there. You saw it with your own eyes how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my commands, then out of all, think about this, out of all the nations, out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession, although the whole earth is mine. I, I, could, I could have picked anybody. Whole earth is mine. You will be for me kingdom priests, a holy nation, These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Of all the nations of the world, everyone's mine, but I have chosen you, Israel, to be my treasured possession. By the way, God says that, if you're a believer, God says that to us individually, doesn't he? You're my treasured possession. I sent my son to die just for you. I called you to myself. I interrupted your life. Yeah, from your standpoint, you said, I believe. But I was the one working in your life. Out of all the people in this world, I called you. You are mine. Moses gathered the people as God told him to do. They were to wash their clothes. They were to, to bathe a ceremonial bath. They were to abstain from sexual relations, husband and wife. And Moses brings them to the the foot of Mount Sinai. Look at chapter 19, verse 16. Now, just imagine what's going on here. Just try to imagine this. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountains. Just picture that. 
Listen to the thunder. I mean, it would have been loud thunder, crackling lightning, lighting up the sky, this, this thick cloud over the mountain. Now, that's all natural phenomena so far, but not the next thing that happens. Then a very loud trumpet blast coming from the heaven. you got to think that the angels are blowing the trumpets. They are getting the people's attention. And as you and I would have done if we had been there, everyone in the camp trembled. Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from the mountain like a smoke from a furnace. Just think about that. Man, Pittsburgh, we see these, these furnaces, right? Think about that smoke billowing up. Mount Sinai, smoke is billowing up on top of the mountain. And the whole mountain trembled violently. Now, a lot of times when we think about the Ten Commandments, we think Moses went up to the mountain, right? Got the Ten Commandments, came back down with the tablets, had tablets that had been written by the finger of God. That's what happened. But something else is happening here, too, that we often don't think about. It seems that as this is happening, God speaks the Ten Commandments. Again, the Ten Commandments are kind of the summary of the whole law. He speaks the Ten Commandments directly to the people as they're standing at the foot of the mountain. Not just with Moses later, but the people are standing there, and they hear, they, they, they see the lightning, they see the thunder, they have the trumpets, and they hear the voice of God. And why would I say that? Chapter 20, the Ten Commandments are given, and now turn chapter 20, verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but we do, uh, but do not have God speak or what? We're going to die. We can't keep listening to the voice of God. Please, you speak on God's behalf, but we can't keep hearing God's voice. So Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you and keep you from sinning. And the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the, the darkness where God was. Now, after giving some more of the law, then notice what happens. Turn over to chapter 24, uh, chapter 24, verse 15. God has now given some more law. When Moses, and then, he, and then he calls Moses up to the mountain, and he tells Moses to bring one other person with him. Who's the person? It's not Aaron, because Aaron's going to stay down, right? But Joshua, we're going to see Joshua later on in the Old Testament. He calls Joshua up with him. So we got Moses and Joshua up on the mountain. Look at verse 15. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. On the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. The Israelites are looking at this. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like consuming fire on top of the mountain. And then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Remember, he was there so long, they didn't think he was ever going to come back. In fact, they, when they saw him walking into that consuming fire, they thought that was that. That was that for Moses. But he is going to come back down. We'll get to that later on. 
So to the people, God gives these 10 commandments, or he gives what's called the Mosaic Law. Okay, something very important as we think about the law. As God gives the law in uh, Exodus, in Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy is the second law giving. It's the name of the book, Deuteronomy, second law giving. We put all those together, and we could divide the law that God gives into three parts. And this is extremely important as we understand how to interpret the Old Testament. First in the law, we have the civil part of the law, the civil law. The civil law is how you live day to day. God says, you're my people. You're my possession. Now, here's how you're going to live with each other day to day. The civil law dealt with uh, how you set boundary stones uh, you know, on your land and not moving the boundary stones. It'd be like the speed limit signs today, right? This road, you go 25 miles an hour. On this road, you can go 55 miles an hour. On this road, you can go 70 miles an hour. Actually, you can go 77, but don't tell anybody. All right? <laughs> That's the law. That's the civil law. That's how you work together. The second part of the law is not the ceremonial law. So you've got the civil law, now you've got the ceremonial law. Ceremonial law says, here's how you worship me. Here are the animals that you're going to bring. Leviticus uh, tells uh, the types of animals to bring. Animals you can't bring uh, to sacrifice. You're going to sacrifice those animals. Those animals are going to be a sacrifice for your sin. That's the, that's the religious law. That's the ceremonial law. Now, we don't live in a theocracy anymore. Now, Christ has come, and, 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 and the church, big C, is made up of all countries, all nations, all people, all tribes, all races, right? So we don't live under the civil law. We find principles in the civil law, but we don't live under the civil law. Jesus came, and he was the one-time-for-all-time sacrifice for our sin on the cross. So we don't go sacrifice bulls and goats uh, and calves and, and, and lambs anymore, right? Jesus is our sacrifice. So we don't live under the ceremonial law. We learn a lot of lessons from it, but we don't live under those two laws. But there's a third law, third string. It's the moral law. And the moral law is man's relationship to God and others. And that string, we will see, goes through the Old Testament and comes into the New. In fact, all but one, and we'll talk about this later, all but one of the Ten Commandments are repeated by Jesus in the New Testament. He reinforces them. That's the moral law. That makes sense? Civil, ceremonial, and moral. And so when you're reading Scripture, you got to know if that's a civil law for that time, and what lessons do we learn from it? A ceremonial law for that time, and what lesson? A moral law, that's still a law that we need to obey. The Ten Commandments, then, are divided into two parts. The first four commandments deal with our reverence for God. We can think of the first four as being vertical. Five through ten, so one through four, reverence for God. Five through ten... Think of them as horizontal, how we deal with others, respect for others. You remember in uh, Matthew chapter 22, the Pharisees, who were experts in the law, 
They came to Jesus and they tried to trick him. They said in Matthew chapter 22, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? They had Jesus, they thought. Because if Jesus picks out any law, he is taking one law and putting it over another, right? And they're going to say, whoa, 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 whoa. You chose that law. What about the other nine? Notice what Jesus does. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. What did Jesus just do? He just summarized commandments one through four. Our relationship with God. Then he said, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. What did Jesus just do? He just summarized 5 through 10. So when they said, what's the greatest law? In that passage, what did Jesus say? All of them. Every one of them. First four, loving God. Last six, loving others. Now, the law was never meant to to bring us into a relationship with God. That was never the purpose of it. Whether you are in the Old Testament or the New Testament, salvation is always based on faith, trusting in God. Remember, Abraham, when we were in Genesis, Abraham believed It didn't say Abraham followed the law and became righteous. Abraham believed, and that was credited to him as righteousness. Now, a lot of people will say, well, wait wait a second. How did the Old Testament saint trust in God? Right? Because Jesus hadn't come yet. So how did the Old Testament saint trust in Christ? We read in in the New Testament the only way to have a relationship, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And we can say, okay, time out. What about the Old Testament believer? Well, make sure you jot this down. Whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, the basis for salvation is always grace. It is a gift of God. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. Old Testament or New. Whether you're in the Old Testament or New Testament, The means of salvation is always faith. We are trusting in God. And whether you're in the Old Testament or New Testament, the object of salvation is who? Jesus. Now, the Old Testament saint probably, they couldn't say, oh, yeah, Jesus is going to be born in Nazareth. This is going to happen. He's going to say these words. They didn't know Jesus that way, but they were looking forward to a coming Messiah. So in the Old Testament, the object of salvation, Jesus looking forward to a coming Messiah. In the New Testament, what are we doing? We're looking at the coming Messiah. That make sense? Okay, let me ask that question again. You guys with me? All right. So, the basis is always grace. The means is always faith. The object is always Jesus. You say, okay, well then, what about the law? Does that mean in the New Testament, we don't need the law anymore? Because we're under, we're not under the law anymore, we're under grace, right? Well, there is a group that holds to that. They're called 
uh, antinomianism. It's a, it's a heresy, actually. Anti, no or against, and nomos, uh, law, no law. Since we're under grace, we don't have to worry about obedience. It's all grace. We don't have to follow the instruction that God gives us. It's all grace. Again, that's a heresy. What then is the purpose of the law? Well, here's what it's not. Galatians chapter 6, uh, 2.16. Paul wrote this. Know that, and again, remember, he's writing this to those who are coming out of Judaism. So they, they, they know the law, and all they've ever known in their religious tradition is you follow the law. That, that makes you religious. Paul says, know that no person is justified by the works of the law. That would have been big news to them. But by faith in Jesus. He's always the object. Faith is always the mean. Grace is always the basis. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no man will be justified. So you cannot have a relationship with God by the works of the law. So then, what's the purpose of the law for the New Testament believer? Romans chapter 3, 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, Romans 3.20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we what? We become conscious of our sin. The law then, think of the best Go back to your elementary days, right? Think in your mind of the best teacher you ever had. That's the law. The law is the best teacher we've ever had. The law tells us. The bar is high. Here's what you do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Anyone here able to do that? I can't do that. So the law does three things for us. One, it reminds us that we are sinful. It reminds us we can't, we can't, we can't jump the bar. We need a Savior who jumped the bar for us. And it reminds us of God's enabling power to obey for the believer. The law continually reminds me. You can't do this thing on your own. You're going to fall short every time. So if I'm in the middle of uh, pick a state, Indiana, and I'm driving in Indiana, and, and, and I'm going 50 miles an hour, and a patrolman stops me, and there were no signs on the road, and he says, you're speeding, I would say, how would I know I was speeding? There was no sign. But... If I just passed a sign that said 35 miles an hour, that sign became my teacher. And now I know, going 50, I have broken the law. That's what the law does. It continually reminds us that we're a lawbreaker. It continually reminds us that we're sinful. So that's why it's so important to read God's Word. God's Word's that instruction to us, reminding us our need for a Savior. 
And man, we know we need a Savior, right? I was, so I was, got up, had my coffee, had a little downtime, getting ready to go run. And as I was, as I was just sitting there, started thinking about a, a story I'd read in the newspaper. And as I thought about that story, these terrible thoughts came to my mind. Terrible thoughts. And I'm thinking, how did, how did that just happen? Anyone have that experience? You guys are like, no, no one had that experience. Did anyone have that experience? Okay. Because <laughs> I'm thinking, that's just me. You're, I mean, you're thinking, how did that terrible thought come into my mind? But I'm convicted by that because I know that you shouldn't have those thoughts. Who, what, what told me that? The law told me. The law is my teacher. It brings to conscious conviction on me. And that happens all the time. The law continually says, you can't jump the bar. You need a Savior. And as believers, you can't do this on your own. That's the purpose of the law. Okay, that was about a 45-minute introduction. And now we're going to get to the commandments. we got about a minute for each commandment. You ready? First commandment, Exodus 20. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other God before me. No other God. Now, God doesn't make random statements. Remember, he says here, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. Months earlier, God is saying there, don't forget what I did. Every plague on Egypt was a demonstration that I am more powerful, that I am sovereign over every God of the most powerful nation on earth. I brought every one of them down. I demonstrated that I am God and there is no other. Now, you've got to apply that. No God but God. I am God and I am God alone. Now, I would imagine that about 99.9% of you here today would agree with that. There is no God but God, right? But boy, the application's hard, isn't it? That's where we always get tripped up. We know He alone is a sovereign creator. We know He is no God but God. But the application. And at the end of the day, I, I honestly have to ask and answer my question, who is it or, or, or what is it I really trust? I can say no God but God all day long. But who am I really trusting? What am I really trusting? So in the, in the Lutheran tradition, they have a catechism called the larger, larger catechism. And, and catechism always starts with a question as a great teaching tool. So the question is, what does it mean to have a God? And Luther answered that question like this. A God is that to which we look for all good and in which we find refuge in our time of need. Now, it's getting a little convicting, isn't it? To have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in Him with your whole heart. That to which your heart clings and entrusts itself is really 
your God. So, be honest. What does your heart cling to, really? What does it entrust itself to, really? We could, we could spend a lot of time going through the list, right? For some, it would be family. Some people have made, some parents have made their kids their God. Some husbands and wives have made their spouse their God. They try to get the significance from another person that can only come from God. Good luck on that. Some people have made their career their God. That is really what they entrust themselves to. And some people, and we've been through this, evangelical Christians, I believe the Bible to be true, make the government their God. Convinced that security and morality and prosperity comes from man. A few years ago, we do these uh, vision trips so a couple of us will go out and we'll go into an area. We'll see if, uh, if we can send some of you there, um, see the logistics and the safety and all that. So we were in China, and uh, uh, there, there, we had a, an afternoon where we went and saw uh, this, uh, this amazing thing, uh, where we, the area where we were called the Terracotta Army. Any of you heard of the Terracotta Army? Uh, these, these soldiers made out of... Life, life-size soldiers, life-size soldiers made out of terracotta. And uh, like, like there are 8,000 soldiers. They've, they've, uh, they've dug them up. 8,000 soldiers, 130 chariots, 520 horses, 150 cavalry. And they were buried with China's first emperor, Qin Su Huang. You know why he... 200, 200 B.C. You know why he, he buried them with him? To protect himself in the afterlife. I got to tell you, terracotta soldiers in the afterlife? But that's kind of what we do sometimes. Job chapter 31, if I put my trust in gold and said to pure gold, you are my security. As I'm reading that, I'm thinking of some commercials I've seen. If I have rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune of my hands gained, uh, the fortune my hands have gained, then these also would be sins to be judged, for I have been unfaithful to God on high. Matthew chapter 6, 21, Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your what? Heart is also. The God that, that Scripture talks about so much, depending on who you, who you look at, depending on the research you do, 800 to 2,000 times, directly or indirectly, is the God of what? Money, materialism. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one or love the other. To be devoted to one and despise the other, you cannot serve God and money. Now, I want to be very clear here. There's no place in Scripture where it says it is wrong to be wealthy. 
And we jump to the conclusion a lot of times when we talk about materialism, right? But there's no place in Scripture that says that. The patriarchs were wealthy individuals. Um, David, the man after God's own heart, was a king. I mean, he was a wealthy man. Jesus depended on some affluent people, finance, the ministry of he and his 12 disciples. There's nothing wrong with having money. It's the attitude toward money. You could could just as well be living in the Mathari slums that we go to with the dirt floor and and living in a shanty and still have money as your God as you could living in in a large home. So let's not, let's not pretend that having money is wrong. The issue is, what do you do with it? Is it your security? Are you use, God, it's God's gift to you. Are you using it in a way that pleases Him? You serving it? Or is it serving you? That's the issue here. You can't serve both God and and money. Commandment two, no idols. Look at verse four. You shall not make for yourself an idol in any form, anything in heaven above or on earth below or in the waters. This commandment is very straightforward. Don't take the God of the universe, this immense God that we can't even imagine, this God of eternity, and and reduce him to a, a statue or a wooden object, or a piece of metal. You don't do that. The command could be communicated this way. Don't worship the true God in a false way. So two things here. One, physical idolatry would be when we take a statue. Let's just be straightforward. statue of Mary, a crucifix, a statue of a saint, a statue of Jesus. And we bow down before that statue. When we reduce... God to um, an object that is idolatry. And when we are using that object as, a, as, a, as an object of worship, it's idolatry. That's physical idolatry. But think about this. There's also mental idolatry. And mental idolatry comes when, when we complete this sentence. When, when I think of God, I think of you complete that. Be careful with it because the completion of that could easily lead to mental idolatry. When I think of God, I think of a loving father. Well, that's true, but God's more than that. When I think of God, I think of the architect of the universe. That's true, but he's more than that. I really got to hurry, but I got to show you this. Okay, so let's just say we take God, and again, I just messed up. I just did what I said not to do, right? But I got to give this picture. So this represents God, and then here are God's attributes. So God is love, and He is gracious, and He is uh, merciful, and He is all the omnis, right? He is omnipresent, He's omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful, He's just, and we, and we go all the way around. I cannot, I cannot pull one of these out and say, oh, God is just that, 
Because when I do that, it's mental idolatry, I am focusing on one aspect of God and ignoring the other aspects of God. And if I say uh, God is love, that's going to end up in universalism. And at the end of the day, He loves everybody and everyone's going to go to heaven. See, God is love, but He's also what? Just. I can't, and I can't pull out His justice and say, man, look at God, look at that. See, everything He does is in the totality of His being. And so when I see Him, when I read a story in Scripture, or when I see Him do something, I say, God, He is, he is sovereign. That was a sovereign act. But that was a sovereign act of love, a sovereign act of grace, a sovereign act of mercy, a sovereign act of power, a sovereign act of, just, of justice. I can't pull any of these things out when I do that. It becomes idolatry. Got to hurry. Here's the last one. Verse 7. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord your God will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. That word misuse, the old, the old King James, remember, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That, that name misuse means to use in a frivolous way. The, the, the name of God represents, that is his character. When you say God, you think of his character. That's, that's who he is. And his name is never to be spoken irreverently. It's never to be blasphemed. It's never to be profaned. In fact, when we prayed the Lord's Prayer, we, Jesus repeated this commandment in that prayer. Remember, uh, our Father who art in heaven, what? Hallowed, revered, heavy, weighty, venerated, respected be your name. So when we say things like, God, oh my God, good Lord, Jesus, Jesus Christ. That's a breaking of the third commandment. We're treating God's name in a frivolous way. We are taking the name of the God who loved us so much that he would send the son to die for us. And we're using it as slang. And we see that a lot, don't we? Right here among us. And that's something we have to say, you know what? I can't, I can't do that. That's, that's what the law says. That's what the speed limit sign says. I now know that. So I have to be careful with my, with my speech. As a believer, we represent the living God. He alone is to be served. He is to be served in His, in his majesty. We are not to belittle Him by serving other gods along with him, no God but God. We are not to belittle him by reducing him to an idol that we would pray to or look to for good luck. We, we are not to belittle him by using his name in vain. If you're a believer, you know that, you know that parents, you know your kids are listening. Families are watching. Neighbors, work associates, and they and they want to see, you know, does does you claim to be a Christian? Does it really make a difference in your life? If you talk like everybody else, 
then what difference does that make? If you act like everybody else, what difference does that make? And people are desperately, desperately needing to see if Jesus makes a difference. So what about you? Are you demonstrating that Jesus makes a difference in your life, or is your life a bit of false advertising? Only you can answer that question before God. And communion gives us a great opportunity to do that. So we hold the bread and the cup. We are to examine ourselves. We are to think about, pray about, ask God to show us where we're we're coming up short in our life. And then thank Him that He reminded us, that He convicted us. And we have a Savior who paid the penalty for our sins and can forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and gives up its power to live a life pleasing to Him.